So, Jay, I've been wondering... What's on your mind, Miles? Where does the Phoenix Force come from? That's a complicated question. The Phoenix has led a fairly itinerant existence, although it could be argued that as a cosmic force, it's technically omnipresent. Does it have a specific origin point, or has it always been around? Officially, it is a child of the universe born in the void between states of being. Make of that what you will. Huh, okay, that's very abstract. But it just happened to manifest as a giant flaming bird. Ah, well, if we're going to go there, we're going to have to talk about its mythic origins, or I guess the mythic origins of the concept of phoenixes as they developed on Earth, since that's where the writers and artists who actually created the phoenix force, you know, as an idea are from. I know phoenixes show up in a lot of mythology, right? They do, but here's the interesting thing. Um, signs actually point to them being based on an actual bird. Wait, seriously? What kind of bird immolates itself and rises from its own ashes? Well, none actually do that. But there is a type of bird that's flame-colored, hangs out in highly alkaline volcanic lakes, which look fiery from a distance, and it lays its eggs atop large mounds that pretty closely resemble the mythic phoenix pyre. What kind of raptor does that? Oh, oh, Miles, the phoenix isn't based on a raptor. Then what? It's based on flamingos. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 224 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and straight into one of my very favorite arcs of Excalibur. I'm glad it's one of your favorite arcs, because, um, it's, it's the last one. Jay, this is Alan Davis's last arc of Excalibur. The series will continue, but we'll definitely judge it a lot harder. We will, um, especially some of those later writers. Not so much other ones. But yeah, this is really the end of an era. I mean, Alan Davis's run is very much its own thing, of course, but it's also distinctly a sequel to the Chris Claremont Alan Davis run as much as it's a continuation. And at this point, the voices of both Claremont and Davis are going to be off the book once we finish this episode. Yeah, but what a way to go out. I mean, Alan Davis's run so far as writer has been largely predicated on tying up and sort of picking up these amazing loose ends and loose plot threads and tying them together into this fantastic whole. And in a lot of ways, I feel like this story is a pretty good metaphor and a pretty good pin to put into all of that. It really is. I mean, Davis is tying up not just stuff from Excalibur, but stuff from the history of the characters who are in Excalibur. I mean, this is really the climax of, for instance, Rachel Summers' story up until this point. Well, and also and even more so, he's taking a lot of disparate and conflicting and complex timelines and elements of those timelines and resolving them with an incredibly marvelously elegant solution, which we'll get to much, much later in the episode. For now, I feel like we should talk about the background that's going to go into this because, again, Alan Davis in this arc, in the, the Days of Future Yet to Come arc, is wrapping up and building on a ton of really convoluted previous continuity. So what's going to tie in here? Okay, well, we have a few threads. Let's start with this one. The Phoenix Force, cosmic incarnation of life, 
saved Jean Grey from certain death and took her form and identity for months while she recovered at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. But then it kind of lost its mind, did some really bad stuff, and tragically died on the moon, still believing itself to be Jean. But you already know all this, right, listeners? I mean, this is like the most famous X-Men story ever. Just in case, we'll link back to the episodes where we covered it. But we definitely did, and you definitely know about this one. So... Then there's Rachel Summers, and Rachel Summers comes from the dark future of Earth 811. This is the future that was first introduced in the, uh, you know, the other kind of classic definitive X-Men story, Days of Future Past. And it is controlled by the Sentinels and a surly cyborg sea captain type named Ahab. And mutants here are hunted, they are killed, and they are imprisoned in concentration camps. One of the mutants who had a real bad time was... Rachel Summers. Rachel is the daughter of Cyclops and Jean Grey, sort of, but only in this universe, and she was one of Ahab's brainwashed mutant-hunting hounds for a while. She managed to escape, at which point she joined up with the rebels, slash prisoners. And in Days of Future Past, Rachel was the one who sent the consciousness of a much older Kate Pride into Kate's teenage present day at the time of the comic's body to stop the events leading to that dark future, specifically the assassination of Senator Robert Kelly. But, as we found out later, that didn't actually work. Instead of preventing the dark future of Earth-811, Kate's actions in the past created a split timeline. But you already knew all that, too, right? Because that's like the other most famous X-Men story ever. Alright, going into less trod territory. The Phoenix Force, which at the time was hostless, sensed Rachel's consciousness when she sent Kate Pride's mind into the future. It was able to follow that trail back to the future, where it was able to work with Kate Pride to send Rachel physically to the present so she could escape rather than dying with Kate when they attacked Project Nimrod. That, are you you following this okay so far? I'm sorry, it's a lot. It totally is. Now, in the present day, now that Rachel Summers had been bodily and psychically transported there... And that is the comic book's present, Rachel's past. Exactly. Rachel bonded with the Phoenix Force, and she was super awesome, and was with the X-Men for a while, was with Excalibur for a while, but then she died fighting the anti-Phoenix, a dude named Necrom. The Phoenix Force, having learned from prior mistakes with Jean Grey, opted not to replace Rachel and lock her in a cocoon, but instead took her off to space to heal after it revived her. During that same big fight, there were some issues with Widget. Widget is a cartoony robot head who had appeared very early on in Excalibur and was responsible for jumping Excalibur between dimensions in the cross-time caper. At this point... Widget had been acting up, and it built itself a new, much less goofy body, one that looked a lot like the Nimrod Sentinels, and disappeared into the time stream. Most of the rest of Excalibur, a team that, aside from Rachel, consists of Captain Britain, Megan Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, Kylan, Cerise, and Farron, have been in a British intelligence base called Cloud Nine, dealing with a jerk named Nigel Orpington Smythe, and some rad kids called the Warpies. Now, we followed their adventures last time we talked about Excalibur, but we omitted the second plot line through all of those issues, um, Excalibur 61 to 65, which involved Phoenix. In fact, um, the two plot lines meet up only at the very end when Excalibur is suddenly confronted by Rachel Summers, wreathed in flames, and dressed as Dark Phoenix. So, we know how Excalibur got there. 
How did Rachel end up at this point? We will tell you specifically with a bunch of stuff from Excalibur 61 through 65. It is cosmic and glorious, and we have a lot to cover, so we're going to do our best to blaze through it like the phoenix blazing through the cosmos, but with, like, less killing of broccoli people. Also, we're going to try to avoid fighting Galactus. Usually a good plan. So, the Phoenix Force, Rachel's body in tow, soars through the cosmos, sort of enjoying the small details of life through human-ish senses. For so long, it was just a cosmic force with no real understanding of the specific versus the general, the divine versus the mundane. But now it's in a human, and so it can enjoy all that stuff, which is great. Yeah, and this is this is kind of going to be the Phoenix going on its own quest to get a sense of its identity. We've seen various of its hosts do this, but rarely the Force itself for this long. And it's going to start specifically with by picking a fight with what is in some ways its closest Marvel Universe counterpart, and that is the planet-devouring Galactus. Now, this isn't the first time the Phoenix and Galactus have confronted each other. The first time on page was in Excalibur number 25, right after the cross-time caper. That was drawn by Chris Wozniak. This is drawn by Alan Davis. The art is, um, different. After a showdown with Galactus, in which she begins to see the error of her ways in attacking him, that in fact he needs to eat planets to continue to survive, and it's not really up to her to stop that. And Phoenix basically loses this fight. Galactus points out that while he has to eat planets to survive, the Phoenix is worse because apparently, and at least according to Galactus, the Phoenix feeds on basically potential energy of the universe, the the energy of the potential of the universe. In Galactus's words, specifically on um, energy that would otherwise go to as of yet unborn life. Um, And Phoenix is really upset, flees horrified, drifts around in guilt and despair um, before coming into, into contact with yet another Marvel Universe cosmic force. But before we get to that, I want to talk about Phoenix and Galactus's fight, because it goes on for literally an entire issue. We'll see a bunch of what Excalibur's doing, and then we'll just cut to a full-page spread of Phoenix in Rachel's body and Galactus engaged in this enormous cosmic battle, energies flaring around them, planets being shattered underneath. Like, it's no Thor number 380, but it is freaking amazing. And what we learn, because we cut back to it um, over the course of the entire issue, is that Phoenix and Galactus have been battling in space for literally days. Like, in real life, as I understand it, I've never been in a fight, most fights last, like, a couple minutes max. These people have been battling for dozens of hours. Well, they're, they're very large. Maybe they move very, very slowly. I guess that could be the case. And maybe they make, like, humpback whale sounds while they do. Humpback whales are slow, so that follows, right? No? Well, I wish it did. Anyway, the cosmic entity that Phoenix runs into... Next is Death. Um, Death, in this case, specifically switching through a lot of its different forms corresponding to ones the Phoenix might might recognize. So, Skrull Death. There's a, there's a four-armed figure who looks a lot like someone from Erath, the world that Kylan lived on, a version of Hela... Uh, the Carpenter from the the, the post-Dark Phoenix Saga classic X-Men back up. And Death surprisingly talks the Phoenix into pressing on and persevering. Um, basically, that, you know, t- tells her that life is choice and growth is pain and Phoenix needs to let go of the idea of her own perfection and just kind of push on. And when we open in the next issue, the this, this segment of the Phoenix story in the next issue... Rachel 
awakens. The last thing she remembers is dying in the fight with Farron, but here she is in space being faced by the Phoenix Force. And not just the Phoenix Force in its big Firebird form, but the Phoenix Force as a cosmic, fiery Jean Grey, as a cosmic version of Rachel's mother. It tells her that for the sake of the universe, it needs to go back to being formless and unaware. It needs to stop existing as a conscious entity. And it leaves her with its power and then dissipates, telling her, Rachel, you are reborn from the ashes of defeat as the one true phoenix. The past is gone forever. Cherish your future. Farewell, phoenix. That's right. This is our confirmation that now and forever, Rachel Summers is the one true host of the power of the Phoenix Force. Suck it, Avengers versus X-Men. See, that's the thing. Like, everything Alan Davis's run is about, Rachel Summers-wise, is that, no, she's the real Phoenix. She's the one that can handle the Phoenix Force. She's the one with, like, the right psychological makeup and ethics to do so. And every bit of continuity after is, like, Rachel Summers, who? Oh, you mean Jean Grey, right? Like, no, Jean's no. great. But, like, the Phoenix and Rachel went hand in hand, or I guess Talon in hand, for, for so long, and it, it mostly went really well, and it just makes me sad when people forget Excalibur, basically. Same! Oh my god, it's ridiculous. But, um, and actually, f building on that further, and I think building on the contrast between her and Jean as Phoenix, Rachel at this point takes on the aspect of Dark Phoenix and flies back to Earth in a massive fire to appear in Cloud Nine. Excalibur is panicked. Um, and as it turns out, they're panicked for naught. As Rachel says, sorry, I scared you, but green is really not my color. And you've got to admit, the Dark Phoenix may have been a threat to all life in the universe, but she had great taste in costumes. Womp womp. Rachel is not wrong. And I gotta say, I appreciate the commitment to sticking her in the green Phoenix costume for the backup stories of four issues with Alan Davis knowing that it just does not fit her complexion or her hair at all. I mean, it also just doesn't fit her aesthetic. Red is Rachel's color, and it has been since her first appearance. But Rachel explains to Excalibur, now that they know she's not going to devour the universe or whatever, at least not for the moment, that her memories have been restored, her power has been stabilized, all the messed up twisted tangles of her mind from spiral from the mojo verse from being sent through time from the phoenix force itself that's all fixed and now she knows what she needs to do and what she needs to do is to go back to her future and fix it in the future within her timeline not try to fix the past not try to overwrite the events that led to it but go to where the mess is and clean it up that's right, Rachel Summers is heading back to fucking Earth 811, Days of Future Past. And I feel great about this. And that brings us to Excalibur 66, and specifically to the Days of Future Yet to Come arc, which is what we led in by talking about, and the bulk of what we're covering this week. I want to talk first about the cover to this issue, because as I've mentioned before, this was the era when I was buying my own comics, when I would finish Hebrew school every Wednesday afternoon and my father would meet me in the parking lot with my pull box that he had picked up from Time Machine 2 in Bradenton, Florida. And this cover I remember seeing and being blown away by. Like, it's the new widget, you know, the one where it's impassive looking helmet and its fingertips are metal and the rest of it is sort of this 
psychedelic translucent background with these concentric psychedelic colorful circles emanating from its center like kind of a LSD tripping Alex Summers and the face of Kate Pride horrified superimposed on it it's such a striking colorful aggressive cover and it just it just for me fits the this era of Excalibur specifically like the weird streamlined futuristic logo Excalibur has these days this is the cover that matches that logo I feel like Alex Summers should never, ever, ever take hallucinogens. God, really, really none of the Summers family. It would just go terribly no, badly. No. Corsair, maybe. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Corsair is just, like, rolling hard about half the time. So, anyway, we sh- when we talk about the future, I think we should talk about the years we're discussing. Because while a lot of Marvel time is ambiguous... We've got specific date points on these issues. And so when we talk about the present, we're talking about 1993. When we talk about the future, we're mostly talking about the the far, the distant post-apocalypse of 2013, or occasionally all the way as late as 2015, years that we can only imagine at this point. I mean, they're going to have flying cars and robot butlers, and you'll just have your meals by taking these pills that still taste like they should, kind of like in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, that the Martians take those pills, and I love that movie more than I should. No, they're going to have been pretty much wiped out by Sentinels. God damn it, Sentinels. Don't crush Santa Claus or the Martians. So anyway, um, in this future where Pia Zadora reigns supreme... <laughs> No, there's a dark. Actually, no, she did a lot of really good stuff, just not that movie. Point being, and not some other movies, point being, we're going to cut for now to the distant future of 2013, and we're going to cut to Kate Pride. You know, the adult version of Kitty Pride in the Days of Future Past universe. She survived, apparently, the assault on Project Nimrod, and now she's stuck in this weird machine being watched by Ahab. She survived in a very temporary sense. At this point, Kate is dying of radiation poisoning, and Ahab's scientists and the Sentinels are trying to use the residual time energy on Kate to open a time portal so they can follow Rachel um, and stop what they presume to be her attempt to fix the timeline. But Kate manages to thwart them one last time. She phases through space-time, basically tearing a hole in the universe. And before we see where she goes, I'd like to point out that Ahab, as he's watching all of this, is apparently a different version of the Ahab than the one we've seen. Yeah, he's riding around in in a little, um, in in a sort of Captain Pike chair situation. Yeah, it's implied by the art that Ahab has no arms or legs at this point. And this makes some sense. I mean, when we've seen Ahab, presumably a later incarnation, he's had cybernetic arms and legs. And... In a scene we saw in a previous issue of Excalibur where Rachel finally escaped being a hound, where she sort of rebelled and fought back, she sent this like telekinetic fucking annihilation wave at Ahab. So it's implied here this is the damage that he suffered from Rachel Summers, and this is probably part of why he hates her even more than he hates most mutants. We're going to get a very different take on that process in some similar scenarios um, involving Rory Campbell, the Ahab of Earth-616. Which, which process always makes me think, I'm going to tangent here slightly because this is the best story. So years and years and years ago, once um, Miles and I drove my then very, very young cousin um, back from a baseball game. And the entire way back, this was like a 40-minute drive, um, 
Will sang us this song that he he insisted was a real song, but he was very clearly making up on the spot about someone gradually losing all of their limbs, which had this sort of dirge-like refrain, you know, no left arm, no left leg, no right arm, and so forth. And you got to imagine this being sung by like a precocious six-year-old too. It was the feel-good hit of the summer. It's stuck in my head to this day. I just sing along whenever I'm bored. It is an amazing classic. Um, it totally but is. But yeah, but you know, that's that's also basically the story of Rory Campbell. Yes, uh, you can see more of Rory Campbell in The Gifted. Kind of. Sort of. He's fascinating. And his actor's terrifying. Yeah, no, he's he's really interesting. And in in the first episode in which he appeared, I remember just like having an absolute, holy shit, they went there reaction when they introduced him as Rory Campbell. Oh my god, it was amazing. Anyway... Um, Ahab, right. He is, he is in, in the further future of 2015, um, which we're going to cut ahead to, um, Ahab does have all of his cybernetic limbs. So presumably the, the Captain Pike chair is a stop along the way to getting fully outfitted with those. And we cut to the even farther future of 2015 as Kate Pride phases through the time stream like we described. And then in the exact same posture, in the exact same physical position, Widget's body, you know, the new widget, the one that is more humanoid and more serious looking, appears just where Kate was. And this is our first clue as to what the hell the deal with Widget is, something we've been wondering for the entire length of Excalibur so far. And it's also the first place where we see Ahab's main goal, which is to take over somehow as guardian of time. Um, he's he's going to take Rachel out as as a step to doing this. Uh, he never he never really achieves that goal. Well, and I think he may have even called himself that earlier on. Like, he works, you know, monitoring the time stream. That's part of why he was involved in Days of Future Present when he chased Franklin Richards through the time stream and across dimensions as well. So he's kind of like if you had a surly sea captain who was really racist and could travel through time with giant robots he would command, and also sometimes he would brainwash people and make them wear science fiction fetish gear. And there is a lot going on with Ahab. It's just like Moby Dick. It's just like Moby Dick. Listeners, if you haven't read Moby Dick, now you don't need to. We're basically just summing it up. But Rachel Summers is effectively this Ahab's white whale. She is his quest, and she's what's ultimately going to take him down. Now, Widget, we mentioned, you know, materializes in 2015, and a sentinel immediately tries to grab Widget, but isn't quite able to, and, and Widget speaks for the first time and we've we've heard widget speak in sort of word salad before but this is different using me using me to find rachel can't betray won't betray rachel must be free rachel must be free now widget then teleports away taking the sentinel's arm with it but ahab who blames Rachel for everything at this point, has decided that clearly she's the one behind all this, and immediately goes to try to convince Sentinel Prime, um, who who goes by either Sentinel Prime or the Hierarchy, and basically looks like Master Mold, and also works like Master Mold, and that he is a large seated Sentinel who poops out other Sentinels, that the right thing to do is to have Sentinels follow Rachel into the time stream. Now, Sentinel Prime says, no, 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 first we secure this timeline, then we send our killer robots literally throughout the entire multiverse to eliminate mutants in every single parallel dimension, which, by the way, is terrifying. But 
I want to take a quick side note and point out that having like master mold across two timelines and having cause and effect on uh, getting to see that reminds me so much of the way Wolverine and the X-Men handled master mold. And that just reminds me of how much I love Wolverine and the X-Men. I'm referring to not the comic, which I also love, but to the cartoon, which to this day is one of my favorite on-screen depictions of the traditional version of the X-Men. Ah, yeah, it's so good. And the fact that it never got its second season, I maintain, should be an actual prosecutable crime. Freaking seriously. Well, now that we've seen some of this awful, awful future, let's head to the radical <laughs> present of 1993, and let's check in with the team that shares a name with the book, Excalibur. Now, they are hanging out at Braddock Manor these days. That is their base of operations since the interdimensional destruction of the lighthouse. And that's one of the changes to which Rachel, newly returned to Earth, is having a difficult time adjusting. Not only are they based there, but, you know, a bunch of the characters have new costumes. Um, Kurt and Cerise are now in love. And Megan and Captain Britain are having, having some trouble, too. And this scene is fascinating to me because... As you may recall, during the Cloud Nine arc, at one point, Captain Britain's powers went away. It was later revealed that this was because Merlin's omniversal energy matrix that he was using to manipulate the whole universe was destroyed in Excalibur number 50. Excalibur blew up their own lighthouse, which blew up the lighthouses across the multiverse, which took away Merlin's source of power. And that also took away some of the sciencey, magic-y stuff that powered Captain Britain. And apparently some of what attracted Megan to him because Megan realizes that she's been looking at Brian differently ever since that happened. She's She hasn't seen the same light and life within him that she fell in love with, and he's taken aback by this. We are more than how we look. Are we? I made myself look like this for you. And at this point, she turns back into her old furry bat form from the old Captain Britain comics. Would you love me if I still looked like this? Would you, Brian? Would you really? I'd like to think that he's learned important lessons about real beauty being within by this point, but I don't know, he's Brian Braddock. You know who else is terrible? So many people! Well, I was thinking specifically of, of Farron, um, our, our favorite uh, in, entitled spoiled child monk elf, who is, is you know, back at the um, manor and ready to to rise passive-aggressively to the occasion. I am surprised you would remember us. I thought you had left us to starve in this haunted edifice. Not that I was scared of the widget specters ranting. He's so adorable and passive-aggressive. Farron, never change. I mean, actually, please change almost everything about yourself. But I'm glad we can appreciate you before you do. I really like how much he is the kid who was groomed to pick up this massive cosmic destiny, but as a result of that, never quite learned how to person. Right, and he is even more furious than usual because Rachel Summers is back, and now she has A, to his eyes, driven away the Phoenix Force, and B, still has the power of the Phoenix Force. This is like an insult to injury kind of thing, but thankfully everyone just tells him to, like, bugger off and stop talking. It's like she borrowed his car, or in his eyes, stole his car, lost it, but gained the ability to roll down the road at like 70 miles an hour. You know, there was that one time that Widget, when Excalibur went to that um, Dirty Pear-themed anime world in the cross-time caper, turned himself into a big silver race car. Do you remember that? I do. I really do. 
As for the power, Rachel explains to Kitty that the, the Phoenix power is how she's going to get back to the future. But she has to go alone. She doesn't trust herself to bring anyone else through, and she doesn't really have enough enough power to reliably pull anyone else through. And anyway, it's her task. She's not going to risk, risk them. They protest, and it looks like she starts to teleport away in that instant, but it's not Rachel. She's not doing it. Something else is pulling her through time. And we'll find out what, but first let's head back to the far-flung, unimaginable year of 2015, where a bunch of characters we've never seen in Earth 811 before appear. They find Widget, along with a severed sentinel arm, just sort of standing there. This is the future RCX. Which we're going to learn later, and this universe stands for Resistance Coordination Executive, not Resource Control Executive. Now... Some of these characters would be familiar to readers if they were reading Marvel UK, which is to say if they weren't me, because I could never find Marvel UK books, even though I always wanted to read them. From Marvel UK, we have Dark Angel from a book called, well, Dark Angel. We have a character named Kill Power from a book called Motormouth. Okay, I'm calling shenanigans here. Who the hell names their kid Kill Power? Because that is some Weapon X level bullshit happening there. Jay, you know a bunch of comics people and their families. Have you never met young Kill Power Liefeld? On one hand, I'm like 99% sure you made that up, but the other 1% of my brain is reminding me that Richard Wagner actually named his child Siegfried. So, anyway. Well, there's no way of knowing. There's no way we could possibly look any of this up on any kind of resource that's out there. That is absolutely a lie. We also have Albion and Grace from the Knights of Pendragon comic. And those are our Marvel UK characters, but we have a couple more that we would not have met. Right. We've got a guy named Arthur. He is fully armored. We can't see his face. And he's basically got sort of a, a blue version of the Iron Man armor. And with him is Tangerine, who has this amazing orange afro, bug-eyed goggles, and, and in whose fashion sense in general I can, I can really only describe as distinctly groovy. I love Tangerine. I'm pretty sure we only ever see her in this story, but she's this, like, compassionate telepath with this amazing disco aesthetic going in the future and fighting robots, and I just want to hang out with her. Now, Kill Power, who is aptly named, thinks that they should kill Widget, but before they can do that, a bunch of sentinels and hounds immediately teleport in, accompanied by Ahab, um... And that, that that bunch are a much, much more active and immediate threat, so the RCX focuses on them instead. One of the Sentinels uses some sort of technology attachments to attempt to grab Widget in a way that won't get the Sentinel's arm blown off, and Widget freaks out. Freaks out in a very similar way to how Rachel Summers in 1993 is freaking out because this is a time quake. This is like a rupture between timelines that's sort of overlapping and merging them and everything is very legitimately exciting because Alan Davis is writing an art. Just makes everything really amazing all the time and I'm going to miss him so much, Jay. So on Rachel's end of the time quake in 1993, Rachel comes in contact with the mind at the other end for the first time and realizes that it's a mind she kind of recognizes. It's Kate Pride. Something about Widget and Kate Pride is the same, or Kate Pride's mind exists within Widget. Rachel isn't sure at this point. She's just certain that there's something of Kate Pride there. Now, before Rachel can confirm her theory, before she can find out exactly what Widget's relationship to Kate is, um, Excalibur jumps through the time rift after her, 
But the bad guys, Ahab and the Sentinels, are able to grab Rachel and Widget and teleport them away to Sentinel headquarters, leaving Excalibur stranded in the future with RCX. And one of the little details that I love about this scene, about all of the chaos and carnage going on, is that as Widget is at one point warning Tangerine that there are Sentinel tracker bots behind her, Widget has a, a few lines, really basic dialogue, nothing we need to reproduce, but those are lines directly out of a scene from Excalibur number 54 when this new version of Widget appears, mumbles something about Tangerine and trackers, and then disappears, leaving Excalibur to wonder what the hell was up. I love that... Like a year before this in the comic, Alan Davis already had this scene planned. He wanted to have time overlapping itself very clearly and with enough foreshadowing to make us buy it. God, this is like a good version of Jean Grey's recorded message about Onslaught. God, you're totally right. It is. It's like if that message had actually been, you know, intended to turn out the way it did. Um, speaking of the way things turn out, that brings us to the second half of the story. Uh, once again, written and penciled by Alan Davis, inked by Mark Farmer, um, with colors by Dana uh, Morsehead and Mike Thomas. So before anything else, um, before they proceed, Excalibur and RCX go back to RCX headquarters, um, the uh, place called Camelot, only to find that it has been invaded by Sentinels and the rest of the RCX slaughtered. This, in fact, is what it turns out the bulk of the Sentinels were up to while the RCX and Excalibur were fighting Ahab and a ragtag handful of Sentinels. They were wiping out the rest of the British resistance. And the rest of the British Resistance were, once again, some Marvel UK characters, including the uh, distinctive-looking Death's Head 2, whose trading card I loved a whole lot. But this is rough, and this is something that we've seen in Days of Future Past before, is enormous groups of characters we have an emotional connection to just get annihilated, disintegrated by Sentinels with barely any lead-up and barely any reaction. This is part of how you tell a good Earth 811 story. You make it clear that... All of the drama surrounding any major change in the main universe, there's just no time for it. People just die, and it just sucks. Yeah. Yeah, the the rate at which disasters and crimes against humanity occur is too substantial to really be able to fully process one before you need to react to the next. Which, you know, as far as, as, far as dark futures go... Um, I realize that this is this is set in the unimaginably far future of, of you know 2013 to 2015, but some of it sounds a little familiar. Um, anyway, speaking of this timeline, though, um, it's time for Excalibur to learn a little bit more about it and a little more of the backstory of RCX. Now, Earth 811 never had a team called Excalibur. The only Excalibur in this timeline, in fact, specifically, is is Arthur's big fancy gun. It did, however, have a Captain Britain and a Megan. Yeah, um, they had kids and things were great, but then the whole family was killed when Sentinels destroyed Braddock Manor. So it's just Arthur's gun, like you said, Jay. Arthur's gun that specifically has the old Excalibur logo printed on it, a touch that I fucking love. It just makes the whole multiverse thing so meta. I would like to think that he did that with like a scratch on decal. Um, now, this is also where we find out Arthur's identity, and this is this is an interesting one. This is a point of significant divergence from the 616, because under Arthur's armor is Nigel Orpington Smythe. Nigel Orpington Smythe? Nigel Orpington Smythe. Yeah, he was the guy who was Peter in the Warpies arc of Excalibur we covered in our last Excalibur episode. He was the guy who was a 
slightly kindly seeming utter douchebag who was all like nationalistic and was just manipulating Warpies for his own good. And here he is as the good man that I always hoped he would be. I always wanted more for Nigel Orpington Smythe. And here I am vindicated here in the dark future timeline of Earth 811. This may be the only good character named Nigel to exist in a Marvel universe. I'm probably wrong, there's probably another somewhere, but this is definitely the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, Nigel Frobisher was pretty terrible too. God, yes. Now, um, yeah, apparently in this timeline though, Orpington Smythe is a pretty rad dude. And once they've all made their introductions and, and talked through their, their respective histories, it's time to take the fight to the Sentinels. The only way to do distinct damage to the Sentinels is going to be a direct attack on their headquarters. They can take out as many individual Sentinels as they want to, and they'll just keep coming, and it won't really affect things on a large scale, so they've got to take out the central hive mind, the hierarchy. And who it is exactly who explains this is unclear, because based on the previous dialogue and based on the, the art in the panel, it seems like it should be Nightcrawler, but the balloon points to Nigel Orpington Smythe. Let's go with Nightcrawler for now. And, and hear what Kurt's got to say about the next step in the invasion and how it's going to work out. Sentinels are logical. They analyze and react. They do not anticipate. They have no imagination. Their creators feared that capacity would impart independent thought. That is why they need human advisors like Ahab. I believe this blind spot will allow us to pass through their defenses in our own Trojan horse. Ooh, see, hearing it again now, it almost makes more sense for it to have come from Orpington Smythe because of what whoever is speaking knows about the Sentinels of Earth-811. It's hard to say. I mean, Nightcrawler certainly fought his share of Sentinels in the present-day Earth-616, and he's, I think, done a little bit of time travel, too. But he wouldn't have done that much—he he wouldn't know that much about their higher organization— yeah, it's it's nebulous and it's an it's 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 an odd odd choice and it's it's oddly oddly hard to place. Well, their Trojan horse is less a horse and more a big purple robot wearing a, a toboggan cap because they are going to repurpose a half-destroyed Sentinel. Cerise is going to use her ill-defined but consistently awesome solid light construct powers to move the Sentinel around to make it act as if it's still functional, albeit banged up a whole lot. Kitty, meanwhile, has finally um, followed through on her threat to redo her costume, and this time she has gone full Terminator. In her words, Shades, tight leather, and a big, big gun. I think I've found my new image. Kitty Pride enters the 90s. But more than that, Kitty is, is gearing up because she wants to be prepared for whatever they find in the hive, and she and Kurt don't really have distance-friendly powers, so this is her way of evening that playing field. After Captain Britain and Megan share a moment of feelings, the group arrives at Sentinel HQ. Um, so that's in Manhattan, and the Sentinels have Rachel contained for the moment. They've also got Widget, and Rachel is able to make telepathic contact, contact and confirm what she suspected before, that this is in fact Kate. What she finds out specifically is that the Sentinels were using Kate to experiment with time warping, and the Sentinel monitor unit she was attached to ended up evolving to survive in the warp, and in the process, absorbed Kate's consciousness and, in Kate's words, a lot of other stuff. So, it's Kate, but it's also a lot of other things, and it's from a base of Sentinel tech, um, which might explain some of Widget's weirder past actions. 
But still, like, I know Widget was messed up when Tweedledope shoveled a bunch of baked beans and a spider and a tin can into its head early in Excalibur, but Widget has always been the goofiest goddamn character and a very lighthearted character. Like, there was the thing that we were talking about earlier where he evolved into a race car. There was the fact that he teleported Colin, the kid that would later became Kylan, to Erath and that one UFO investigator to Earth-794 to die apparently there was the fact that he just mimicked the speech of everyone around him ate every machine in sight all the time widget is goofy as shit and the entire time it's been the tragic dying consciousness of kate pride from a dark future desperately trying to save her friend and a lot of other stuff Uh, well yes but okay here's where i like widget's new design now i like widget's new design for a lot of reasons but i appreciate that alan davis is implying by all of this that It really wasn't until Kate Pride's consciousness was getting closer to surfacing inside Widget that Widget got this new form, that new serious form, that new science fiction-y, impassively metal-faced, almost tragic-looking form fits this so well, much more than a metallic Kermit the Frog would have. And... This is a beautifully drawn sequence. This takes place sort of in, in Kate's machine consciousness. And... The line art and the colors just work together so beautifully here. Miles, you wrote in the outline that it reminds you of of the Ultra as it was drawn by Barry Windsor Smith. And I was thinking that too. It's got that sort of a beautiful otherworldliness and that sort of pop art aspect to it. But what I especially like is if readers have been following this book, if they've seen those amazing scenes of the Ultra in Barry Windsor Smith's Wolverine story or in Alan Davis's uh, meeting up with the awesome old Yeti story from Excalibur more, more recently – Like, they've seen those neon colors, they've seen those thin inks, but here we have them as these clean polygons, these sharp edges, these straight lines, whereas in the Ultra, they were curving and sweeping and soft. And so I love that this represents psychic reality, and the contrast is what tells us uh, just how different Kate is than who she used to be, how far away from the mystical and emotional this new Kate has become. What Rachel also learns from Kate is that by sending Rachel into the future in collaboration with the Phoenix Force, Kate accidentally made the Sentinels aware of alternate realities, and now those Sentinels are, in fact, bent on multiversal domination. They decided to follow through with Ahab's plan, just not as a way to capture Rachel, just as part of extending their prime directive. Rachel is able to use the Phoenix Force to break herself and widget Kate free just as the cavalry arrives. There is this amazing panel of, like, all of our heroes, including Lockheed wearing tiny sunglasses, firing these big, ridiculous 90s energy guns at Sentinels, and it is so self-consciously 90s and perfect. Um, now, they managed to hold off the Sentinels, but it's a losing battle. Meanwhile, Rachel, aided by, by Kate, connects with the hierarchy's central intelligence, which brings us to my favorite part of the whole series, because the fighting abruptly stops. Rachel has done something, and what she has done is so simple and so perfect. Ahab, once he realizes the fighting has stopped, is furious. He uses his spear, he tries to kill Rachel, and it's then that we see the twist, because a sentinel plucks the harpoon, plucks Ahab's harpoon out of the air, and snaps it. What Rachel has done is changed one word in the sentinel's prime directive. She's deleted one word. Uh, She's changed it from protect human life to protect all life. It's just so simple and perfect. And that all life phrasing includes even the bad guys, includes probably frustrating him more than anyone else, 
Ahab, and Rachel explains why. It's never been about revenge. I wanted to change time, to bring back my parents, to make things the way they were, but I know that's not possible. We are products of our past. Change it and we cease to be what we are. I know that now. The last thing the Phoenix said to me was the past is forever gone. Cherish your future. Rachel Summers is a character who's been defined by trauma. And as we all know, X-Men is a book about metaphor. And I think this is just such a beautiful, optimistic, maybe even overly optimistic, but beautiful message when discussing trauma. Just the idea that you've been through a whole lot of shit and the future may be hard, but, you know, it can also be beautiful. It can also be so much better than anything you've ever experienced. It can be bright enough to justify all those sunglasses they've got now. The future's so bright, you gotta wear shades. Do you remember Saved by the Bell, the college years? There was, um, that was the spinoff of Saved by the Bell, and that was the theme song they used for it, and, like, half the characters were gone. Oh, yeah, it was weird. Like, half of the characters were gone, and nobody ever mentioned them? It was really disturbing. Like, had they been erased from Zach Morris's mind? Was this some kind of alternate universe where those characters had, like, died in, while being born or died in a car accident? It really raised a lot of questions that the series was not prepared to answer. And the issue ends, um, RCX tries to convince Rachel that, you know, she can stay and, and, you know, cherish this future with them. And she says, no, her home is, is in a, with Excalibur. And that's where she's headed. And Davis's last line of dialogue in Excalibur comes from Kitty Pride, who tells us, I love happy endings. I wish this were the ending of the series. I wish at this point there had been a second series with the same characters and it had just split because this feels like such a good conclusion to the series we've been following since the beginning of Excalibur, since the sword is drawn. Yeah, in terms of plot, in terms of character, but I think most of all in terms of theme, this is what Alan Davis has been working toward for his entire run and for his portion of his and Claremont's entire run. Hell, you could take it back to the art Alan Davis did in Captain Britain and some of those themes are still coming through, but this is a book about responding to trauma, be allowing yourself to become something else without forgetting who you were. That happened for Kurt and Kitty after the mutant massacre. That happened for Rachel in all sorts of ways. That happened for Captain Britain and Megan in their own ways. It fits beautifully, and I'm totally with you, Jay. Like, if this were the last issue of Excalibur, and we got to see the characters in, you know, another book, maybe just a renumbered Excalibur even, that would be perfect. And I'm not saying that the Excalibur after this isn't good. Some of it's very good, some of it's very bad, but... This is just such a perfect conclusion. It seems like almost a shame to follow up on it. Yeah, it's a weird thing to then continue. It, it's, it's, it reminds me of, of sort of my wishes that X-Factor had renumbered once the new team came on. But even though the future may be resolved, you, listeners, still have questions. Adam asks us via email. Um, referring to a recent event in comics, have the X-Men ever mass-produced Magneto's hat to protect against telepathic villains before? So the recent event, and spoilers for a recent issue of X-Men Red, if uh, you haven't read it, you can just fast forward a little bit, is the red team of the X-Men and the Avengers and all of their allies and all of the Atlanteans all wearing Magneto helmets to charge into battle against the ridiculously powerful telepath Cassandra Nova, which is goddamn brilliant, and I love everything about it, except for the fact that you'd think they would have maybe altered the design, like, even just a little. You know, maybe yeah, no, have, you they know, are purple and red, and that is essential to them working. 
I mean, maybe that's the case. Like, we do know that magnetism is basically magic and magic does have rules. But seriously, I can just see, like, all of the innocent people of the world seeing their saviors come up and go against Cassandra Nova and then being like, wait a minute, you guys are dressed as a goddamn supervillain. You must all be supervillains. Holy shit, things got worse. So... As far as we know, it hasn't been manufactured before, but we know it's possible because in New X-Men, in the Riot at Xavier's storyline, Quentin Quire is able to make a replica of Magneto's helmet, a fully functional one that he uses not to um, prevent telepaths from getting into his head, but to prevent Professor X from using his powers from plans Quentin found on the internet. I love everything about that. It's like there's this Earth 616 version of the Anarchist's cookbook that's just all supervillain gear that you can use to do terrible things or even just prank people. And speaking of Xavier's, while the Magneto gear in question wasn't mass-produced, at one point during Extreme X-Men, during Greg Pak's run, um, a team got the helmets and the gear of a lot of dead extra-dimensional, extra-universal alternate Magnetos and all wore it um, in order to go up against a big evil Charles Xavier consciousness. And going once again to the Wolverine and the X-Men cartoon, there's a scene in A Dark Future where Polaris is wearing her father's helmet after her father's gone, and it's just so much is shown and not told. So much is chilling and sad because of that. I Again, we love that series. We love it so much. Isabel asks via email, I've just been reading Gabby Rivera's America series, and I'm realizing how much I love anti-assimilation stories. It reminds me that I really enjoyed Cyclops' radical turn. What would you say are the high points of anti-assimilation philosophy in X-Men? Morrison's run of new X-Men, for sure. That's the point where you really see mutants developing and establishing mutant culture and mutant identities outside of, you know, having an X-gene or fighting and protecting a world that hates and fears them. And unfortunately, a lot of that was lost in Decimation, but it was really, really a golden age of of anti-assimilation mutant culture and identity and stories about that. There's a specific Jean Grey line from the same run in a slightly different context that I love that is one of my favorite, favorite quotes on that topic. And that is, we can't afford to be ashamed anymore. We can't strap down our wings or hide our strange eyes and brilliant minds. That's so freaking cool. That's just so poetic. Another era that brings really true for that, and I think is is the root and sort of where we really see the emergence of the Cyclops, who's later going to lead the mutant revolution, is the utopia era of X-Men when they're living, um, and, and the stuff that immediately precedes it, when they're living in and near San Francisco. Finally, Kitty Pride's M-word speech, or rather her, her refutation of Havoc's M-word speech, is a, a pretty classic moment that we've referred to before of, of really good crystallization of and discussion of mutant identity. And there are even little simple things. One of my favorite anti-assimilation moments is the classic X-Men backup story where Logan dares a still new to America, newly accepting himself Nightcrawler to walk down a busy street without his image inducer turned on. And it's just such a wonderful moment of their friendship, but it's also just such a wonderful little take on one of the things you would deal with as a mutant, a nice little metaphor for so many things that so many people deal with every day. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and or concepts. Let's hear, once again, from the angry Claremontian narrator. Oh, Caitlin Phillips. You thought you knew exactly what to do. That you could rewrite destiny with the power of words alone. 
But Cypher could have told you that words are slippery and inconstant tools, and you would have done well to heed the warnings of Michael Falk, and also maybe to read up a bit on descriptive linguistics. But you didn't, did you? And uh, with that, the mic goes to Surly Sea Captain of the Future, Ahab. The chrono-temporal sea be a harsh mistress, but not as harsh as the white whale, I mean, the red woman who took me leg, and me other leg, and both me arms. But the salty rage of the master of the hounds be not just reserved for that cosmic lubber. Daniel Larson sailed the waves of the time stream to flag down a parking lot attendant, and me precious Pequod was towed to Davy Jones' locker. She be only parked there for ten minutes, post-apocalyptic fire hydrant be damned! And PG-13 bad guy sang shanties at all hours of the night and drove me men of the time sea to drink. Many poor decisions be made that night, believe you me. Ah, old Cap'n Ahab's energy harpoons be seeking all your wicked hearts! Speaking of sea shanties, Miles, have you seen She-Ra yet? No, but everything I've read about it and have seen about it looks amazing. Okay, first of all, it's, it, it is. It's fantastic. Uh, we watched it over two nights because we're ridiculous. Um, but it's terrific. There's also a character in it who A, looks like Corsair, and B, is all about some sea shanties. Well, that just jumped up near the top of my watch list. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who is himself a sea shanty aficionado. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, at explainthexmen.com, and across the deep blue sea. Check out the deep blue sea along with explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including sea shanties. Our show is 100% listener and mermaid and siren and very slow-moving whale supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free and afloat, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. I will be out at sea next week, but Miles will be here to hold down the fort and sing you your pick of sea shanties along with guest expert and deck swabber Austin Gorton of Gentlemen of Leisure. For a flashback to the new warriors. And probably some sea shanties. Yarr! Yarr!